Thank you for getting up so early and joining us this morning. Um, can you all hear us? We good? Okay. Um, so I want to welcome you to our session focusing on the future to preserve the past, examining trends to navigate ongoing change. In the coming decades, um, we know that there will be much change. How many of you feel like you're um, changing technology and things is going way faster today than it was 25 years ago? Is there <laughs> Did you go to the app session yesterday? That was a great one. So change is constant. We see it all around us. In some history organizations, they're uh, greatly downsizing or even closing their doors now, while others are growing and thriving in their communities. And the reason for this is really as different as history institutions themselves. But I believe the more prepared and able to adapt to change we are, the more successful we're going to be. So many practitioners, my colleagues here and myself included, believe that history organizations can play an important role in preparing for and responding to change by exploring trends and identifying preferred futures. So the California Association of Museums also feels this way, and to assist their members take on such a role, um, we provided strategic foresight training to 38 museum leaders throughout the state, and these were people that were both long-standing in their careers and emerging professionals. Um, through the Leaders of the Future project, we are helping to train these museum leaders to employ foresight techniques in their work and to collectively address um, how we all can effectively respond to change um, that's continually going on all around us. So my name is Lisa Erickson, and I have had the pleasure of being the project director for the Leaders of the Future program for the past two years. Um, so for today's session, I'm going to give you a brief introduction to our project to kind of give you an idea of what we've been up to. I'm going to give you a basic overview of strategic foresight, and then our panelists here are going to tell you about their experiences as members of the Leaders of the Future project and how they're using their new foresight skills to improve their professional lives, their museums, and their communities. And then in our last half hour, we're going to have you act like a futurist and take a look at a, a trend that we've picked out to discuss. So to give you a bit of background, the seeds for our Leaders of the Future project was planted at an AM workshop. Um, this was a collaboration between the Center for the Future of Museums, um, AAM's think tank for the future. How many of you are following their work? Okay, not too many. Well, there's a handout, resource handout on your table, and there's all sorts of information there to hook you up with the resources that we'll be talking about today, including the Center for the Future of Museums. So after this workshop, um, Cam and uh, Center for the Future of Museums uh, produced this uh, handbook, guidebook, for um, uh, introducing people to forecasting and um, developing scenarios that they can discuss and consider. Um, from the Futures Workshop, CAM was at the same time going through strategic planning, and they identified forming a new foresight committee to continue these conversations was something that they as an organization um, wanted to do. So 
As a way to get there um, and to cultivate these leaders for the committee, CAM developed a two-year strategic foresight training project. Um, we were generously funded by the Institute for Museum and Library Services. And we provided training, as I mentioned, to 38 museum professionals from throughout our state. We had um, a board member from a teeny tiny history organization. We had people from SFMOMA, the Getty. Um, it was a really, really diverse group. Um, we hosted two day-long workshops taught by a professional futurist, and we created an online forum where our participants were able to communicate during the project. We had it closed for a little while so they got comfortable using the tool, and then we opened it up for conversation. Um, we're continuing this work as a committee. We've formed the new CAM Foresight Committee, and we're currently in our first, very first year of operation. And even if you're not in California, I encourage you to join us on our online community. We're going to be uh, revamping it and figuring out how to improve it in the coming months. So it's going to be very exciting. So now let me give you a brief introduction into what strategic foresight is and what we mean by it. Um, foresight refers to the ability to construct images of a plausible, possible, and the word I like in there, preferable futures based on the study of change. Um, it's often referred to as futures, uh, foresight studies, forecasting, and other terms. But basically, it's the study of change um, to help respond to future events in a more positive manner. Strategic foresight improves our decision making with relation to potential threats and opportunities. And it's always a much longer um, time frame that you're looking at than our normal um, museum or historic organization three to five year strategic plans. What it doesn't do is predict the future. We always refer to it as future studies. It's plural because there are many futures that, that could be playing out. So how does this way of thinking, um, how, how is this going to be helpful to history organizations and museums? Um, the four I focus on is that, the, you know, again, it, this looks at a much longer time frame and helps us prepare for continual change. Um, foresight helps us connect us with other industries and sectors. I think we've become so incredibly uh, professionalized, which is wonderful, but sometimes we don't look outside ourselves for new solutions and models. Um, it helps our organizations work more closely with our communities, and finally, it encourages imagination, innovation, and risk-taking, which I think we need to be doing more of. Um, three basic techniques we touched on and, and trained in our class, um, our uh, project. Um, the first technique is scanning, and this is a fundamental activity of foresight. Basically, it's reading and doing research and collecting data, which as historians, you guys are probably all very comfortable and excited about doing. Um, it's a way to research and collect data and identify and monitor change over time. And the participants in our program were asked to use a um, social bookmarking tool called Digo, and they were asked to bookmark as many interesting articles, PDFs, videos, all sorts of things that they found. Um, and we also asked them to share two of their best scan hits um, with our online uh, futures group for discussion. And in between our two workshops, we had a homework period where um, we had participants break into nine domain groups that they identified that they were interested in, uh, subject areas that they would research. Um, and they worked on developing what we call a baseline forecast. And this is a report on the most likely future 
within that domain um, across a number of time horizons. So we decided to focus on 2015, 2020, and 2030. So we've published to date uh, four reports, which are available to you online, um, on various domain topics. And um, basically, these forecasts are based on continuity of current conditions and trends. Um, they look at how the future is going to play out if things kind of keep going along as they are. And um, our panelists are going to tell you a little bit more about their baseline forecast and how they integrate that in, into their work in uh, just a few moments. Um, one other technique that we um, explored in our workshops and um, uh, I think is a really important uh, tool for us to use as we do strategic planning and talk with our colleagues is using alternative scenarios. And alternative scenarios get you to examine um, discontinuities and futures that sometimes are a little uncomfortable or surprising. Um, they're different from the baseline. You know, again, the baseline is how we go along um, and think things will uh, happen if nothing changes dramatically. Alternative scenarios generally introduce a disruptive event, an earthquake, um, something um, major happens, or um, they identify a trend that just kind of goes off track. So they're really good to, they're basically like stories. You, you know, create them, read them, think about them, um, what would my museum do if, and they really free your mind from the here and now and get you in a place where you can be doing thinking um, beyond your normal day-to-day -day routine. And there's some great examples in uh, the Tomorrow in the Golden State document that you can take a look at and, um, you know, perhaps have an activity with your staff to talk about what would happen to our museum if this, this scenario came to be. So let me now introduce our panelists. Um, they both were obviously involved in our Leaders of the Future project. Uh, Karen Graham-Wade, to my left here, is the director of the Workman and Temple Family Homestead Museum, which is a six-acre site in Los Angeles County, California. Karen holds an MA degree in art history from the New York University's Institute for Fine Arts, where she focused on museum studies and American architectural history. Karen is active in several professional organizations, including ASLH. I think that's how we met yes, all those right. years ago. Um, and she's now a board member of the California Association of Museums. And um, she is serving as the co-chair of our new uh, Foresight Committee. So I've been working a lot with Karen over the past two years. She also led our Leaders of the Future domain group, which focused on changing uh, demographics and access in museums. And she's going to tell you a little bit more about that. Um, Leslie Matamaros is an exhibition installer and designer, and she's focused on developing exhibitions on local and regional history at her museum, the Museum of History and Art in Ontario, California. Uh, she holds a BA in Studio Art from UC Irvine and a certificate in Graphic Design and Multimedia from Chafee College. Um, an experienced exhibit installer and art handler, Leslie has served on projects funded by various um, funders in California, and she's worked uh, with K through 12 students in a variety of teaching environments, producing static and traveling exhibitions. Um, Leslie is going to report on her process of integrating foresight into the development of a history exhibition she's working on now. 
So I am going to turn it over to Karen and let her tell you a little bit more about her work after I pull up her slide deck. Well, actually, while Lisa is changing uh, the PowerPoints, I do want to mention, uh, even though I have only been a futurist technically for two years, something that I discovered is probably from the very beginning I got into the History Museum field because I am a futurist. Uh, because a futurist has to have uh, that rooting in the past in order to make certain uh, that we do have sustainable futures. So I come to this field actually as a futurist even though for many, many years I didn't really realize it. Um, what we're going to do now is, after learning some of the basic concepts of strategic foresight, we're going to show you how to apply that to the real world, our everyday uh, worlds, uh, from the theoretical basically down to the pragmatic. Uh, and, you know, specifically how we can help our museums not only today to recognize the trends that are uh, currently happening, uh, but also to be prepared for tomorrow. Lisa's actually already um, started telling you a little bit about my institution, but I'm going to use the homestead as a case study uh, for how uh, strategic foresight specifically uh, in our case can be used to help us better understand their visitors and how to meet their needs again today and tomorrow. Uh, the Homestead Museum, as Lisa said, is a six-acre historic site in eastern Los Angeles County, about 20 miles east of downtown. We have a paid staff of 10, a volunteer staff of about 75. And our annual attendance averages 14 to 16,000. We've been as high as a little over 18,000. And it really all depends on a variety of factors that we're going to be talking about in just a few minutes. Um, and one interesting factor is over time we have discovered that uh, over 70% of our visitation is to our special events, not walk-in visitation. Uh, we're in Los Angeles. We don't have basically any public transportation to get to us by bus and that's the only way to do it. It would take hours, days, from downtown Los Angeles. So we've been asking some questions uh, about our visitors. Uh, you know, have the demographics changed over time? Well, we have noticed that we continue to have a lot of Caucasian and Hispanic families visiting us. But there's also a very large uh, Asian population near our site. Uh, and we are beginning to see Asian families coming, but not that many Asian adults or uh, you know, other groups other than family groups. So, you know, why is that? Have our attendance numbers increased, decreased? Uh, we have seen, as I already indicated, an increase 
in uh, the, the number of people who come to our special events. But the last couple of years, those numbers are down. We figured out why. It's because we've had some horrendous weather conditions. If we have really hot weather, like we did last weekend in the high 90s uh, for our 1920s festival, we're not going to get the same numbers as if we were in the low 80s. Uh, is weather changing? Are we meeting the interests and needs of our current visitors? We have done visitor counts, a great ASLH program, which we will do a follow-up for. So we know now that our visitors are pretty happy, but are they going to continue to be happy in the future if we continue doing just what we're doing today? And are there audiences that we've been overlooking? Uh, we have realized that there were some audiences we were overlooking because they were coming anyway. For instance, uh, audiences you know, like those with cognitive uh, impairments. Uh, we are very fortunate to have several very active uh, group homes, institutions that serve uh, people with a variety of cognitive impairments in our community. They were coming. We weren't serving the needs. Uh, what could we do about that? And then finally, and all of these things, how will they change in the future? Uh, will weather change? We know that demographics are changing. In fact, the domain group that I worked with uh, was uh, changing demographics and access issues. We know that us baby boomers, my generation, those of us born between 1946 and 1964, there's going to be a lot of us. But we also recognize that after the Gen Xers come the millennials. The millennials are bigger than we are, guys. Those of you who are baby boomers, uh, I don't know if you realize this, but there's going to be more millennials. So how are we going to adjust to those changing demographics as these generations uh, get older? We're not going to age. We're just going to get older. Uh, it, it's really not hard to answer some of the questions about today, uh, but we do also have to ask the questions, why? Why don't we have more Asians? Perhaps it's because we don't tell their story. The story we tell is about the Europeans, Americans, and Mexicans uh, who were in the area. We tell that story well. Uh, the Asian community did not factor into the history of the San Gabriel Valley uh, until about 30 years ago. And our interpretive period is 1830 to 1930. How can we engage this population that doesn't feel a connectedness? As I said, they do come with families. That's partially because their kids are coming with their schools and the kids are bringing the parents back. So we, do we have to wait for that? Attendance. I sort of hinted at this. We are already being affected by weather. What is the weather going to be like in the future? We've got to be prepared for that. Uh, and today we know that they're interested in festivals. Are they going to be interested uh, in the same kinds of events in the future? And are we going to be prepared for these visitors in the future? 
Uh, and, and it's not just our visitors. There's so many ways uh, that we need to think about uh, how to be aware of what might happen in the future. So strategic foresight uh, is definitely our answer. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, I was involved with uh, the domain group on expanding access and changing demographics. Uh, and it's really understanding how these changing demographics uh, and accessibility issues uh, are going to uh, be shifting in the future and how we can, through understanding the better, uh, can better serve our visitors. In our report, we looked at four different areas. We looked at demographics by age, ethnicity, and then uh, broadly uh, issues of museum access. And not just physical access, but also intellectual uh, and programmatic access. So very quickly, I'm going to go through uh, what we did examine in this report. On demographics by age, uh, we first of all looked at a snapshot uh, sort of a current assessment of where things are today. Uh, for instance, uh, every single solitary day, uh, there are 10,000 baby boomers turning 65 in the United States. I must admit, I was one of those this past year. Uh, but it's just starting. Uh, but also, uh, we, we have to look at some of the characteristics. Uh, both Gen Xers and Millennials have a very heightened sense of individuality and independence greater than previous generations. We need to look at that. Uh, trends, um, we, we see that in general, and of course this is very generalized, uh, boomers tend to look at museums more as places of retreat where younger visitors want places of interaction. Uh, stakeholders, uh, groups like AARP, what role are they going to play in the future? And then Lisa already mentioned the baseline forecast. We did three, uh, and, but I'm going to show you one that we came up with. And again, this is a forecast for 2030. Uh, the museums who benefited from the involvement of boomers uh, as both volunteers and visitors will begin to experience new shifts as us boomers start turning 85. Are we still going to be there? You're going to rely on us for the next 20 years or 15 years, but are we going to be there uh, by 2030? Then we also looked at demographics by ethnicity. Uh, the snapshot that we saw, for instance, in California that today where we are today, over 43% of Californians speak a language other than English at home. We, we are working on bringing in, we, uh, for instance, at our festival last weekend, we had buttons uh, that told our visitors if people were fluent in Spanish. Uh, we have people fluent in Korean. We have people fluent uh, in uh, both Chinese dialects, and uh, American Sign Language. Uh, we, we let our visitors know who they can go to. Uh, trends, uh, we, we realized through our scanning 
that most Hispanics identify more with their uh, country of origin than they do with just being Hispanic. We can't think of the Hispanic community uh, as a general community. Don't, don't tell someone from El Salvador that they're a Mexican. Uh, one of the stakeholders that we know is going to play a major role in ethnicity is the federal government. We have to look at what the federal government's doing. And then the forecast for demographics uh, is that by 2020, 50% of California children are going to be immigrants. 50% in California. We've got to be prepared for that. And then again, just briefly, museum access, uh, snapshot government fundings drying up. What's going to happen with that? Trend, baby boomers uh, will have many more, many of the same physical uh, and cognitive challenges that folks have had in the past. But as a baby boomer, don't you dare treat me like you treated my parents or, or even my older sister. I am not going to be the senior citizen of yesterday. So we're, we're going to be a very different older generation. Uh, stakeholders, uh, groups that advocate for people with disabilities are going to continue to play a major, even a greater role. And uh, baseline forecast is uh, museums uh, will have become accessible spaces where young and old can meet. We're hoping that we can be places where we can, uh, through accessibility uh, measures, bring everyone together. So now, how has the homestead used these tools uh, to better serve our visitors? Well, in some ways, uh, I realized we've been thinking like futurists in many ways, but we didn't have the tools to really fine tune. Uh, we have been identifying and monitoring change. For instance, we knew that we were getting an increased number of visitors with cognitive impairments. Uh, we didn't fully understand, though, the trends in the increase uh, in instances. Uh, we explored the implications, uh, largely uh, through research, uh, through reading, but also talking with our colleagues who had already worked uh, in areas, for instance, of accessibility, meeting with people uh, at other institutions. Uh, we made an institutional commitment, too. Uh, we actually drafted for the Homestead Museum an access services position paper, a white paper, uh, which I did bring a copy of, that outlines our institutional-wide commitment to improving access uh, for museums. And, oopsie, we uh, developed or adapted programs. We decided to be uh, more practical that is there a program we can adapt that we already have, not start from scratch. Uh, and that's what we did. Uh, we adapted an existing uh, program that was originally developed uh, for our school age uh, population, but changed it for visitors with cognitive impairments. And that's called California Living. Uh, it's designed for on-site tour groups, uh, small groups, uh, and one of the big things is we had these people coming, but they were taking watered-down 
uh, regular tours, which just weren't working, which were largely chronologically, factually based. This program is thematically based. Uh, we encourage always interaction and touching, but we just upped it a notch. But one of the important things that I would like to emphasize for this audience, don't just uh, develop these programs for the clients. You've got to develop them for the caregivers, too. You have to have that interaction. Uh, because if you have a caregiver who's bored out of their mind, you know that uh, their, their clients are not going to be happy either. Uh, and again, for practicality reasons, we uh, structured the program so we could adapt it. For people with memory loss, for people who have developmental disabilities. Uh, and actually, originally, we were not going to uh, look at visitors within the autism spectrum, but we started seeing more and more uh, groups coming who were somewhere on the autism spectrum, uh, and we've been able to adapt it. The challenging thing is because we have to fine-tune the program, it's still only being taught by paid staff. We have not gotten to the point of figuring out how best to train our volunteer staff to do it, uh, but it is working. And that will be a future stage. Just very quickly, a couple of pictures. Um, we, uh, you know, talk about, for instance, the architectural crafts, uh, both in our 1920s house and in our Victorian era house. We talk about uh, the tile work. Uh, we we had uh, we talk about uh, woodworking. We had one gentleman who had uh, issues with memory loss, who had been. Uh, a woodcarver, and he just came alive when we started talking about that touching adobe bricks. Another change we've done is uh, just, just in general, obviously provide more seating. I don't have real mobility issues, but I sure want some place to sit. Uh, increased visitor engagement, incorporating new technologies for all generations. Uh, you know, we have QR codes. Uh, in many places throughout the site now. And one of the important things is we have been continually revising our docent training so that we can have our volunteer staff be up on some of these things. But we've really only just begun to adapt for the future. Uh, we're, we're at the early stage. It's an ongoing uh, process, uh, but we are committed to making certain that our visitors in the future uh, are happy, as happy as they are today. So here's my contact information. If you'd like other, inf other uh, information about our programs, and I do have some business cards. Thanks. Thank you, Karen. Okay, give me just a moment here to get set up for Leslie, and we'll hear what she's been doing at her institution using her new foresight skills. There we go. Thank you. Right. Hello, everybody. I'm from the Museum of History in Ontario. Um, we are 30 miles east of Los Angeles in San Bernardino County. Our building is a WPA building, so it was built in 1937, just to give you an idea what the facilities are like. Um, about two years ago, the museum received a grant from IMLS to learn how to produce in-house exhibits. 
Um, this particular staff had not had experience building exhibits in-house. And a key component. Thank you. A key component of the IMLS grant was uh, peer learning. So I was selected to go to Oakland and be a part of CAM's um, strategic foresight workshop and learn tools that would help us design a better exhibit. Let's see. So some of the things that I learned there um, is understanding the basic future thinking and future thinking um, techniques, respond more appropriately to both long-term change and unanticipated events, recognizing how foresight strategies can apply to develop more useful, adaptive, strategic plans. So we were, I was looking at this as a tool that would help me develop an exhibit that would really give our visitors what they needed instead of building an exhibit and then going, oh, I wish we would have done that. So one of the really great tools that we learned was scanning, which is actively participating daily in monitoring information. So some of the uh, some of the areas that I monitor are professional newsletters like the Center of Future of uh, Museums and CAM, social networks and apps like Twitter. But I don't follow my friends. I follow other organizations or news outlets. Freedly, which is an app that helps you kind of uh, fetch information from other sites and you can tailor it to things that are you're interested in viewing. Uh, Digo and uh, Google News. Other uh, news outlets, tech magazines, um, government agencies, and other nonprofits. So I'd like to share some of my favorite scanning sources and they fall into the steep categories which is social technology, economics, environment and policy because we want to scan information outside of our profession because then we'll get a better view of what our audience may need. And so the first one is Psychoport, CNET, which is really great for technology. Motley Fool and Marketplace are really great because they have a podcast and I can listen to that in the car. Uh, the Huntington Post Green, which is fabulous, and Grist for Policy. And so I picked five trends that are really felt that we're going to influence the way we designed our exhibit. And the first trend is multi-generational, which is defined as spanning three or more generations. And we already started seeing this in our programming. It wasn't just mom and dad and the kids. Now we're having grandparents um, involved. And so we wanted to make sure that our, our exhibits were accessible. So one of the things we decided is we bumped up the fonts which we hadn't done in a long time. Our exhibits that we had now had very small fonts. The line and the spacing in between the fonts was really tight, so we opened that up. We brought down the eye line, so um, our previous exhibits, they were kind of high for smaller people. It just isn't inviting. And we also picked out vocabulary words that we would help um, understand the exhibit. I think I forgot to tell, talk about the exhibit. I was just rushing. So the exhibit history topic that we used is um, the Armstrong Nursery, which was, which began in Ontario in the 1920s and is still present present today. They're known for their mail order catalogs and for their roses. They won many awards for their roses, especially their most famous is the Charlotte Rose. Our next trend is the bring your own advice, uh, your own device, and this is just we see this all the time. People bring their own devices, whether it's a mobile phone, or with, and pretty soon it's going to be glasses or watches. And we realize that our facilities 
does not have a clear um, policy on where you can and can't take photos. So we really realize that as we're designing our future exhibits, we need to make that clear. This is a mobile-friendly area where you can share and post with your friends. This area may not be, or we need to really rethink how our policy works for mobile devices. Um, the next trend is uh, 3D printing. Um, this is the process of making a three-dimensional object using a scanning, uh, scanning the, the object. Not that the museum is going to go out and buy a 3D, a 3D printer. That's not the point. But I think what interpreting this trend is that people are going to want to have more accessibility to their artifacts. They're not going to be content just seeing them behind a plexiglass. And as we were doing um, surveying through the process of the development of this exhibit, um, we found that people wanted to see the actual roses. They didn't want to just see the pictures, and we were just kind of like, oh my gosh, yes, they want to smell them, they want to touch them, they want to see the true color of the roses. And how we um, figured out this issue is we realized we had a rose terrace on our, our grounds that was a neglect, and we decided to pull the roses that the nursery actually grew and plant them there and invite people from the exhibit. Once you see the exhibit, <coughs> you can go outside and see the actual roses. And we also um, put in interpretive panels that can be changed, that won't be static, so that this component can change once the exhibit is um, closed. <coughs> the next trend is recognition software. It is becoming more and more advanced. Um, most, most of you are probably familiar with QR codes, and we realize we really don't have a process of how to do this, how to gather the information, how to get it ready for the apps. I realized through scanning that QR codes are actually going to begin to start fading out and there's more advanced technology. So we felt that we were going to start using QR codes in this particular exhibit just so that we can learn how that works because we're going to get passed by really quick with the technology that is out there for software um, recognition. <coughs> the next trend are pop-ups and these are really fun. It really started with pop-up stores that would just appear anywhere, um, but now you're seeing pop-up museums, pop-up exhibits, pop-up premieres and buses, and we realized another thing that the Rose Terrace did for us, it was a pop-up exhibit to get people to go outside and, and walk around our grounds because they really weren't. And, um, or if they happen to be outside and see the Rose Garden, they'll see that we have a, an exhibit that's in conjunction with the Rose Garden. It also, it also happens to be next to our, um, we have horseshoe pits out there. So hoping to get people outside and kind of use the grounds and the other um, items that we have there. We have a, a, a time capsule and also a memorial and fountain that we can probably incorporate in our exhibits as a pop-up exhibit to highlight those areas. And the last one is digital detox. And um, after talking about all this technology, I thought it was important to realize that um, we also have to offer um, an alternative. And most of you, I think you've maybe been familiar with the National Park Services has this new campaign, which is Unplug and Reconnect with Nature. So we also felt that that, that rose terrace garden answered that question too because you can unplug, go outside, uh, walk around the grounds. It's the sunny, the sunniest part of our grounds, um, the south side. It's by the horseshoe pit. Maybe they'll get, um, you know, feel like they can talk to the other people that are playing because we do have people playing there at all times. And um, so I really feel we learned a lot through um, 
the, the workshop and really making better decisions on how we design the exhibit and not just um, making choices because we think they should be this way or that way, but really tailoring to what we feel that the, our visitors would, would need. So I think I hit everything and I will pass it over to Lisa. We're going to pick a, a trend for you to think about and discuss here shortly. So let me give you a little um, clicker. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, let me give you a little intro uh, to trends. I think um, probably many of you uh, already are clear with the concept. But basically, trends are a type of change characterized by directionality and speed. So they can go up or down. Oh, there. Thanks. Okay. Trends uh, can go up or down. They can um, uh, be moving slowly or quickly. Um, they can be more or less frequent. Um, one way to collect data to identify trends, as we mentioned, is through scanning. And Leslie gave you some good examples of the sources that she looks at. Um, but basically, it's about reading broadly and undertaking research and collecting data through a wide variety of sources. And, want to point out, you know, it's important to look at both mainstream, uh, you know, New York Times and everything, the things we, we are normally gravitating to, but to pick some uh, other resources that we uh, call fringe that are maybe sometimes outside of your comfort zone, like, you know, reading economics um, publications or things. So, you know, I challenge you to, to try reading a few different things that uh, are following blogs or whatnot to really pick up on some of these um, uh, divergent trends or things that you might not be quite as familiar with. Um, and then um, what we're going to use today, um, how many of you ha have had a look at the Trends Watch 2013 from the Center for the Future of Museums? Anyway, okay, great. So this is going to be new. So um, I'll give you a brief introduction. Um, the Center for the Future of Museums um, publishes a wonderful blog. They have an e-newsletter that goes out every week that gives you all sorts of great scans. They kind of do the scanning for you. So it's a great introduction if you don't feel like you have time to really introduce that into your own personal habits. Um, they also are publishing a variety of documents, um, videos, and whatnot. And the thing they're starting to do annually is publish a, a report called Trends Watch. I've also got a copy of 2012 here. These are all available to you to, to download. Um, and in 2013 Trends Watch, they highlight six trends that their staff and advisors uh, believe are going to be highly significant to museums and their communities. And this is all based on their scanning work over the, and analysis over the past year. Um, so today we're going to think about one of these trends and discuss what this trend might mean for your history organization. Okay, so Leslie kind of set us up for this one. The trend we picked to talk about today is called disconnecting to reconnect. Can people unplug from a hyper-connected world? So how many of you feel like you're really dependent on technology and your computer and handheld devices? Yeah, I mean, we're all dealing with it all the time. So um, here are 
here's a photograph of a living history museum in Israel where you can surf the web while touring uh, the land of the Bible on one of the oldest forms of transportation. That's not a feed bag. Photo got a little washed out here in the translation. Um, not a feed bag around the donkey's neck, it's a Wi-Fi rider. So you can sit on your donkey, um, interact with historic costume characters, and tweet or post to your Facebook page as um, you're in the middle of the desert. Um, yet, a hyper-connected world, as, as both Karen and Leslie kind of touched on, um, people are beginning to consider some of the downsides of, of being constantly connected to the Internet and their smartphones, and people want this opportunity to have a place for a digital detox. Um, so I think this opens up uh, many opportunities for our history museums and organizations to highlight one of our strengths is that we can be places of contemplation and restoration, places where families can come together to connect and, and spend time together. Um, so, and, and how many of you are from small history organizations? Yeah. So those of you that are from smaller organizations, you know, you probably, um, this is something that, that you might be thinking deeply about and embrace um, in the future. So let me give you just a little overview of how the trends um, laid out in the report. Um, experts, um, earlier experts projected that 57% of the U.S. Uh, Internet population will own a smartphone by the uh, beginning of this year, and that more than two-thirds of smartphone owners say they can't live without their technology. A third of adults say they'd rather give up sex than their cell phones for a month. <laughs> okay. Um, so now, how many of you have a tablet device, an iPad? Okay, great. Tablets, booming. Um, futurists imagine plausible futures where we're either wearing our devices or they're bio-implanted in us, Google Glasses, that sort of thing. Um, but there is this backlash, particularly um, in favor of more contemplation, face-to-face -face contact. Um, there's been a lot written by educators and parents that are worried about their children not being able to, um, uh, you know, their, their attention spans are diminishing from the technology use, as well as their ability to um, connect with one another. Um, we've been reading a lot about soft skills and the importance of, of soft skill training. Um, and even the most connected generation in America is experiencing connection fatigue. According to the um, report in the Center for the Future of Museums, 60% of 18 to 29-year-olds say they feel guilty about the amount of time they spend on their phones, social media, or the Internet. Another interesting point is that businesses are really picking up on this. And um, they're seeing that these demands for, you know, less connectivity and contemplation um, they're creating unplugged vacations and other services. And here there's a picture of a Kit Kat sponsoring a no Wi-Fi zone in downtown Amsterdam. And I found, sorry, the photo got really washed out. Um, a local cafe in Oakland where I live, they have laptop-free days. On the weekend, you're not allowed to bring your laptop into this coffee house. So while they do offer Wi-Fi during the week, they want people to have a chance to chill out on the weekend. So I think history organizations are kind of caught between these contradictory demands of people wanting to come and use their smartphones and QR codes and everything, and also this desire to have a place where you can kind of let go of your devices and experience things in the, you know, real time and connect with your family or the people that you attend with. Um, so now let's give you a turn at this. So we came up with some questions. 
Um, how is this trend uh, disconnecting? Um, how is this playing out in your community? Are you seeing signals of this? Is this trend likely to impact your institution? And how might your institution take advantage of this trend, uh, the opportunities it might present to you, or are there some threats that you see that this trend could play out to your institution? Um, so why don't we take the think-pair-share method here and take a few minutes to just think about this for your own institution. I'm going to leave the questions up here. Um, you know, what does this mean for your organization, your museum? Um, and then turn to the person next to you, and either in pairs or you can even group in threes. Um, we'll take about 10 or 15 minutes to talk through, and you can share with the other person what you think about the trend in your institution. You may be totally different kinds of institutions, and so you may have very different views on this, or there may be some similarities that you can share. Then we're going to come back and kind of share out what, what we've discussed, and we'll be available to answer any questions. So does that sound okay? And All right. Everybody's at the table. And we're gonna and we're gonna wander around and you know check in with you and, and talk to you. So I'll leave the questions up here. Disconnecting from technology. Think about it and discuss. <laughs> Okay. Let's gather back together. Um, I'm glad to see that you were having such intense conversations. Um, we have about 10 minutes, so I'd like to kind of hear back from the groups just briefly. Um, has anybody um, Talked about, did anybody talk about specifically seeing this trend going on in their community and already being addressing it, thinking about it? Any of the groups want to raise your hand? Oh, yeah. You might want to follow, um, uh, you know, looking at things about maker movement. One of our students at JFK uh, Museum Studies program wrote her thesis last year on the maker movement. We actually have uh, maker fair at our institution. Uh -huh. Maker movement does integrate technology, though, at times with, with making of robots and whatnot. So anybody else see this trend as really going on in their communities? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh -huh. 
Uh huh. So this this isn't really relevant for you. You feel like you've got the the disconnect part covered, but you need to work on the the connection to fill those needs. Yeah. Well, one thing I'd like to add to that is this is what you're seeing today. Let's consider what you're going to see in five years or ten years. And one of the uh, intents of strategic foresight is to look at where you are today, but be prepared for where you're going to be tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And it's harder for you know small organizations, so it's thinking about your position or niche. Well, and then who's going to be your future audience, and yeah, how are they approaching things?
does work of all. <laughs> Anybody, so how many people here felt like this is going to have some kind of, if, if this trend plays out that people are really wanting this, these kind of places of, of, you know, being able to disconnect, how many think that that might affect your institution? Okay, all right. And um, it's like you're already touching on the opportunities and risks. Does anybody see this kind of trend as a risk to their institution? Did anyone discuss that? How about opportunity? Actual reality. I like that. Any other observations or interesting points in your conversation? exercise helpful? So you could see how you could use some of these tools even just reading uh, about a or an interesting article that you come across or using the great resources that the Center for the Future of Museums. Um, you can join our online community and participate in our conversations. But, but having these discussions with your staff and colleagues um, I think really does get us to a point where we're thinking broader and we can integrate this kind of thinking into our planning. So um, does we have, what, how many? One minute? We have one minute. One minute? Okay. Um, we'll be hanging out for a little while afterwards if you have any specific questions for us. But is there any one last question that someone would like to ask of us? We do have copies of the baseline reports that have been completed up here. Uh, and also, uh, there are evaluation forms at the tables, which we would appreciate you filling out. Thanks. And we 
have somebody right. here to pick them up. And thank you so much and hope you um, keep considering the future and using strategic foresight tools at your organization. So thank you.